five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. So we all know and care about weather forecasts, but do you know what space weather is? Maybe you should. Solar events like geomagnetic storms have had dramatic impacts on our life here on Earth in the past. And they will do so again, it's just a matter of time. Mission Space from Latvia want to forecast space weather. Two of the founders, Xenia Moskalenko and Atom Axelrod, will tell us all about it in this episode. Enjoy. Hey everybody, we're back on the Space Business Podcast. I'm thrilled today I have Mission Space from Latvia as my guest. Specifically, it's uh, Xenia Moskalenko, who is a co-founder and director of the company and Atom Axelrod, who's the Chief Operating Officer. Welcome, guys. Hi, Rafael. Thanks for having us. Super excited to be here. Great. So let us start off the same way we always start off. Why don't one of you give us the elevator pitch on the company? Sure. I'll be happy to do that. So as Mission Space, with our own nanosatellite constellations, we deliver custom sensors for advanced space weather monitoring, ultimately developing a global predictive space weather system that is designed to be used as a decision support tool to detect and forecast space weather-related uh, risks. Our continuous and sector-specific space weather monitoring allows for more accurate prediction of changes in the radiation level and let industry leaders implement proper mitigation strategies beforehand. Okay, perfect. So we have so many things to unpack here. So just reminding everybody, we are a podcast that's also trying to reach people who are not currently in the space sector. So we, we have to take a step back here, guys. One of you, please explain what, what is space weather and how, you know, how that's not really related to Earth weather. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having us. Uh, and uh, Thanks, everybody who is listening. Uh, so Space weather is basically conditions of the sun, just being simple as that. But there are solar flares that come from the sun. And on the ground, there are basically three space weather events that affect critical infrastructures, the geomagnetic storms, solar radiation storms, and radio blackout. Those three different uh, storm categories affect different infrastructures depending on the location, technical design, and, and other things. I don't know what else to say. Maybe you have some direct questions that I can elaborate on. Sure, let's maybe use an example. So, I, of course, I know a little bit about it because I've studied this kind of stuff. I guess the very famous event historically would be the so-called Carrington event. And maybe you can explain a little bit like what happened there and 
yeah, just give some examples of what happened there and how it really impacted the world at the time. Yes. Yeah, so one of the biggest ones was in Quebec uh, in March 13th of 1989, which was some time back. Uh, and we haven't had any super severe space weather events since then. But it was a nine-hour clinical death of the city because of a two-second geomagnetic storm. The huge transformer that was worth $10 million was permanently damaged. People were left without the electricity for hours. Toronto Stock Exchange bridges, airports were shut down. And the total estimated loss was about $28 million, which would nowadays translate to about $2.4 to $3.4 So since then, we have dramatically increased our dependence on technology and the internet, but unfortunately haven't really made a major step toward preventing incidents like that from happening. And that was a, a relatively recent one. I mean, obviously not very recent, but in sort of cosmic terms, relatively recent. And if I remember, there was the Carrington event in the 19th century, mm -hmm. and that Obviously, we, did, we had much less technology, but I think scale-wise, that was an even much bigger event, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, it happened in uh, in September of 1859, if I'm not mistaken. There was like a strong solar cycle this year, and a, so a solar coronal mass ejection hit uh, Earth magnetosphere and included the largest geomagnetic storm on record. And you're right, we didn't have a lot of technologies out there, but if I'm not mistaken, uh, the like, half of the planet or something like this were were off, and there were telegraphs. There weren't any other other technologies, so telegraphs were really in, impacted by by such event, and almost half of the world left without any connection. I would say, but there is not a lot of information on that since it was a long time ago. So yeah, the Quebec yeah. one was was closer. And what I always remember from this, um, the one example is I think there's some eyewitness reports that you could suddenly see northern lights as far south as the Caribbean, which which of course sounds ridiculous. But I guess what I'm trying to get is, is so, you know, the, the Quebec event, yeah, very recent, but a little bit smaller. But if we had something on the scale of a Carrington event, right? And again, in sort of cosmic terms, it's it's not that long ago, right? And I think there's the expectation, but correct me if I'm wrong, that this will happen again, right? And then maybe you can talk also a little bit about maybe what how people are thinking about this probabilistically, like, you know, when it might happen again, or sort of like, you know, how many times in a thousand years, or I don't know what the right metric is. And then if we had something on the scale of a Carrington event today, you know, when we have a lot of satellites, a lot of other, like the entire world is dependent of, on electricity, on communications networks. What would happen today? If Carrington event happened, this cycle, for example, then we would have losses from somewhere in 2.4, 3.4 trillion dollars globally. And it could cause power blackouts, massive power blackouts on the sun side of the earth and lead to disruptions in, in, in many, many industries, in airports, closure, as well as um, there is a report, uh, I don't remember who the authors are, but they say that if the Carrington type event happened nowadays, around 80% of satellites would have been lost. And you understand since we rely on GNSS and GPS, well, it's going to be a huge problem. No internet, no no signals, no no network. The possibility of such an event, it happens somewhere one time in a hundred years. Yes, it, it, it's it's a low possibility, but if it hits, then half of the world is going to be blackout. Yeah. And what NASA keeps saying right now is that we're entering a new solar cycle this year and the solar minimum goes to the solar maximum. So we could and should be expecting some space weather events in the next 11 years, which of course is good for our startup, but might not be as good for actual industries and companies that the infrastructures that will be affected. How prepared is the world for this right now? 
you guys think? Uh, it depends. It depends on the countries, well, and on the resilience of some in critical infrastructure to space weather. So I'll just take example of the United Kingdom. So they are one of the few countries that have uh, listed space weather as their national risk. As their national risk. So they are actually the Met Office in UK. They're doing a lot of a lot of work uh, regarding space weather and. They have hardened, let's say, their power grids. So if some severe space weather event happens, there's not going to be a lot of disruptions in there. But there are other parts of the world that are not resilient to space weather. Let's say United States, they keep saying that, look, guys, if something severe happens, we will be, we'll have power outages. And uh, there are only a couple companies that produce uh, the transformers that are used power grids and will have something up to 18 months of recovery time. And yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, I talking about the US, you know, I remember obviously totally different event, but I remember back in 2005 when we had a hurricane Katrina and basically New Orleans was without basic infrastructure for, you know, a few days and maybe slightly exaggerating, but not a lot, sort of like civilization was on the brink of collapse, right? Because obviously police forces and everybody is relying on communications and on power and everything. And so it's a pretty scary perspective if you had an event uh, on a much bigger geographic scale and possibly much longer time frame. Yeah, true. But, but anyway, let, let us move away maybe from the apocalyptic uh, vision so we don't depress people here too much. I guess there's basically a scale of these events, right? I mean, so you have the really bad ones like the Carrington event, but correct me again if I'm wrong, but some of this is happening basically every day, right? Yes. Yes, there are a number of uh, geomagnetic storms. At le- I think at least uh, there are about 175 that are happening every year. There are five to 10 solar radiation storms, as well as 150 radio blackouts that happen um, on a yearly and five yearly basis so they do happen however not a lot of them significantly impact and actually make the news if you're into science fiction like myself and we will end up as always the podcast on discussing science fiction then we many of us know from certain science fiction books that it's really bad if you're somewhere in interplanetary space outside the magnetosphere and you get hit by a solar storm very 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 bad as we know now on earth obviously we have the, the the partial protection of the magnetosphere but so these like smaller type storms how do they affect us on earth well it, it depends on the severity of the storm so, so to say the everyday ones not the not the really bad like character type events uh, well it's it's hard to document it because space weather services they exist there are a couple let's say NOAA has uh, their space weather services ESA has European Space Agency but it's hard to document them because uh, even if they happen they're small there is an insignificant loss of let's say GNSS navigation and people are like okay one two minutes okay it's fine nobody actually cares that much because it doesn't lead to significant disruptions, significant impacts. Therefore, we just don't see them that much. We studied a case with railways recently, and uh, there were some insignificant uh, space weather effects that affected Sweden and Russia. There was a problem with train positioning. So basically, the signaling system was reporting that the train was located in the false position, and nobody paid attention first to this. But then uh, when there were studies and researches made after that, they realized, oh, there was space weather. It might sound insignificant, right? But Let's mm-hmm. say if the system gives you wrong numbers, then they might, it, it might lead to some serious damages, some, some serious disruptions. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, so in, 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 in your startup, right, where you're trying to basically have a predictive service of space weather events, I mean, who, who do you see as the, the key users who are more affected by these um, smaller storms? Great question. So our primary, uh, I would say, end users would definitely be government agencies or research institutions who actually work with the data and they process it and they make it into more actionable insights. 
Uh, but in terms of those smaller companies that might be affected are, of course, railway systems. If we were to work closely and get the infrastructure-specific data from them, we'd be able to tell them, okay, look, in, let's say, 30 or 60 minutes, there'll be a geomagnetic storm that's going to hit that exact signaling system, which is located right there. So please watch out and make sure um, if there are any disruptions, you are aware that this is just a disruption because of a geomagnetic storm. Uh, we also target insurance companies that work with disaster mitigation and the whole risk assessment. Um, there is uh, Lloyd's uh, in UK with the McKenzie Insurance Intelligence Services. They work with risk disaster prevention and seeing how um, financially that may impact um, energy companies or um, oil and gas uh, drillers. So stuff like this i guess if i may add on there is also aviation industry just to add up on the topic of space weather most of the impacts happen on high latitudes and there are polar routes and they happen close to the poles and they happen on high altitudes so those flights the polar route flights they are mostly affected by space weather mm -hmm. and uh, there is exposure to radiation of crew and passengers so this is also our our potential customer but it's um you know it's covid times Air airplanes don't have that much time and don't, don't care about space weather yet because they have to you know get out of the crisis but uh, as soon as as soon as they get out then we'll try to target them and and see how the, how space weather can be uh not actually implemented but make space weather services better for them so they have less losses in the routing flights and uh, disruptions and schedules. We, we, all, we all obviously hope that the whole COVID thing is going to be over soon with the vaccination so we can start mm -hmm. traveling again. And, and then, you know, if we survived COVID, we certainly don't want to die or get cancer from some <laughs> sort of high radiation dose on a polar route. So, I mean... <laughs> Was there any way in like which airlines handled that? And and by the way, I guess we should for again for the listeners say so the, the reason this occurs over the poles is the same reason we 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 have the nice effect of the polar lights, right? But it was what was I going to ask? Now it's basically before COVID, was there any way in which the airlines were handling that? I mean, were they observing that and say, okay, now there's uh, too much solar activity, now we're going to cancel this polar flight? And was was that happening? You you actually right. That's actually how it works. Well, I know that NOAA has its subscription service for airlines. They actually provide space weather services but uh, the main difference is that they have the satellites that are located closer to the sun. So can, they cannot say with 100% accuracy if the, if the solar flare is going to hit the Earth and lead to serious disruptions. Therefore, our mission is to complete their services by increasing the accuracy and telling them more about the space weather event, the location, the severity of the of space weather event, and give them opportunity to, you know, not to cancel all the flights, but to cancel some of the flights or to reroute them. Uh, yeah. So... so they don't lose money, as I said, on fuel and on uh, disruptions in schedule. And is it just about, um, let's say, the danger of a higher radiation dose for the passengers or in an extreme event, could this actually knock out the electronics and the avionics and everything? It can lead to disruption of avionics systems. Anything could happen. There have been some documented cases where there were problems with electronics due to space weather events. But uh, still, it's it's a topic where you have to, you know, work closely with the infrastructure and understand their inside study because, it, you know, it's just difficult to say, look, electronics is off, it's space weather. Yeah. We have to still study, understand, compare our data with their data and only then we can definitely say what happened. Okay, let's make a jump also a little bit higher from aircraft to satellites, right? Because I guess there's the same question about satellites that the electronics in the satellites and the systems could be affected by that. And we mentioned the poles and there's obviously a lot of satellites on polar orbits. Um, 
what do satellite operators do about uh, space weather? So as per satellites, this is a really good topic to talk about. I agree. You're absolutely right. They're, they're actually located in the space and there might be total cell degradation, just radiation damage to satellites and as well as the overall failure of the satellite due to space weather events. I'm not sure if you know, but there, there were Halloween storms in 2003. It was the, one of the strongest Gamma storms as well. And uh, during this storm, Japan lost its $640 million environmental satellite, as wow. well as uh, NASA's seventh instrument on board that, that was worth $150. So this is just one example. But yes, we have been in talks with uh, different, different satellite operators regarding the space weather services. And we got some positive feedback that, yeah, guys, we need that. But it's still a long way to, you know, to understand and to provide them with the mitigation strategies. Because let's say the solar event's coming and we tell them, look, guys, it's happening. For now, the only way to, to do the mitigation strategy is basically to tell them, guys, go to safe mode to turn off electronics mm -hmm. so you don't lose the satellite mm -hmm. we don't see others yet but this is one of the ways to to actually yeah to actually work with them well it seems it seems preferable to switch off the satellite for a short while than to like have a 640 million dollar loss i guess yeah yeah absolutely we think so as well exactly so, yes go ahead mm -hmm. and we also have been uh recently researching how our space weather data or just any space weather data could be useful to spaceports and launching facilities. Mm -hmm. And we're still in the process of figuring out like what exactly, what, what exact data they use. Do they need anything else? Uh, and we're seeing how we can complement the already existing solutions in the spaceports because from what, from the initial research that we've done, uh, the launching conditions are also affected by those space weather, coronal mass ejections, galactic rays. And if we can detect them and provide the supplementary data, I think that could give them a fuller picture of uh, favorable launching conditions or unfavorable launching conditions. So still it's like process of market penetration and, seeing what are the actual pains and needs of the customers and potential users of that space weather data. Yeah, let's, ex let's explore a little bit further because, I mean, this is not necessarily only about equipment, right? I mean, we can talk about crude launches as well. So how does NASA or other space agencies handle that at the moment? Do they look, I assume they look at space weather before they launch astronauts or cosmonauts, right? We think that they do actually, because we have already, we have just started penetrating this this niche, if I may say. We have been in talks, uh, I'm not going to name the guy, but uh, he was working at, at SpaceX and um, he told us, yeah, there is a, they actually care about space weather, but we don't know all the details, but they definitely consider the, the, the conditions of the sun and um, they have to cancel or delayed launches if there is strong severe storm coming mm -hmm. but we don't have any further information yet because we're still you know in talks with them so i just don't want to give you know some false information sure. Not, sure. Not the actual insights i guess this is going to become really relevant as well you know now that we're planning the artemis missions to go back to the moon because i mean again you go outside the protective shield of the earth's magnetosphere so one would think there they would really have to consider this quite strongly right yes yes absolutely well we have already read about the the space stories you know it's it's it should happen pretty soon we hope so there have been some policies that basically uh talk about space weather then when the space travel is going to start then the space weather services should be considered heavily because there's going to be um, a higher exposure of, of passengers and the crew to radiation because as we know radiation that it's like it's, it's not one-time thing if you fly back and forth then you get more and more and more radiation doses Therefore, let's say I saw I saw the news that in 2027 that's going to be the first space hotel, something like that. Well, imagine people living in the space and the hotel, and the and the there is a severe radiation in there, and people just get this radiation and 
you know, they, they have some problems with health. Therefore, yeah, we, we believe that space for the topic is, is, is going to be something important in the near future because we're living in a new space economy. Everybody mm-hmm. should consider that. And so let's talk a little bit about the commercial side and your, um, and your customers. You've mentioned a few groups already, like airlines, like railway companies. You mentioned insurance companies, which I find very interesting, especially after you mentioned the $640 million loss of a satellite. Have you spoken to some of these potential customers? How is the reception? I mean, if you show up, you know, at one of these companies, do they do they actually understand what space weather is? Or they're like, what are you talking about? I, I don't know what that is. Great question. Yes. So we were accepted to one of the energy accelerators and we started the talks with them. Uh, I think it was Inno Energy. And the, there were people that have been working in the energy sector for 20, 30 years. And when we started talking about space weather affecting like grid collapse and uh, power blackouts, they were like, wow, we have never heard of that. We have never experienced that. Tell us more about the past events. So we actually had to pile um, a report of telling them what could possibly be the effects of space weather on their power grids. But yes, that's what we got, that the directly the energy companies do not really have an understanding of uh, actual space weather risks. Uh, but insurance do, I think, uh, at least from what we've been getting as their reception, uh, we were accepted to the... Um, to participate in the Lloyd's Lab evaluation process. And if they chose us out of 100 participants talking about space weather, I think that has something to say. Also, we know that Munichre, SwissRe, uh, some other U.S. companies like V-Risk, uh, they do some weather risk assessment, but not exactly space weather. And it's been of a growing interest to them as well. Uh, And everybody, whether we're writing them or emailing them, they are eager to talk to us. They're super excited, but uh, we're still in the process of getting those like no potential actual clients, seeing how much they're willing to pay for that. Uh, Would they be willing to beta test our data? Um, So yeah, something like that. Okay. So the, the people who have been monitoring it, you know, like you mentioned that some people like the, even the, the, the airlines have been looking at it a little bit. Where do they get the data from right now? Is there government satellites or anything like that who are, which are tracking the space weather? If I'm not mistaken, there are a dozen of satellites, existing space weather satellites that uh, actually measure this and monitor space weather conditions. And um, mostly this data is public. Mm-hmm. For example, if you go to... European Space Agency website and click on the space weather link there, you can register and receive a real-time space weather updates. There is also NOAA who delivers such services. Mm-hmm. And basically, yeah, that's it. Uh, it's it's public, nobody pays for it. But um, when we have been talking with ESO, let's say, they're like, yeah, guys, you're interesting and interest, your your project is interesting and you your, da- your data set can complete our data set and uh, make it, you know, ultimate space. (laughs) Yeah. Like the main difference from our system, uh, so our listeners understand that the current space weather satellites, they located on the higher orbits closer to the sun. Our space weather uh, uh, satellites, they will be located on the low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. Yes, we'll have uh, a less lead time, but our our predictions will be 100% accurate. We'll have somewhere about... uh, depending on the on the infrastructure, 60 minutes of lead time to tell mm-hmm. about the severity of space weather event, type of space weather event, and where it's going to hit. Okay, so this is actually pretty much a real-time system, and so you, you have to be basically in, like fully integrated in your customer's uh, sort of um, 
workflow somehow because otherwise it's it's not, not doesn't work right yes yes you're right and that's that's uh, the most difficult thing for us to actually you know start implementing the system getting the, the infrastructure specific data to correlate our data and their data and integrate it into their into their system mm-hmm. otherwise we'll be just giving you know overall information on yes there is a sun site on the earth we know that in this specific area there is let's say a couple power grids that might be affected by space weather and mm-hmm. within an hour we'll, we can say it's gonna hit you might have some serious damage Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, it's, it's always the same um, issue, a very frequent issue with any type of space data, including all of the remote sensing data, is that very often it's not customer-centric enough, right? Because, I mean, for an airline or a railway company, I mean, at the end of the day, they don't care it's space weather or, like, you know, it's coming from space. They just want to, they just care about how it impacts their business. So is that something that you guys take into account and you're sort of like, um, let's call it um, analyzing and, and cleaning and preparing? Yes, definitely. We actually have uh, in our business model, we have two channels. So the space weather data distribution in the raw format to complement, uh, let's say, space agencies data sets or insurance companies data sets. But we also have the short term warning system. Uh, with actionable insights and alert notifications with our support team on the line. Uh, and that would be to those energy companies or railway operators to like warn them that something is going to happen and flag the risk of those blackouts or power outages, actually delivering them the insight to do something, to mm-hmm. launch the mitigation implementation process. Mm-hmm. And so I know you guys want to have your own satellites and we'll talk about it in a minute. But so is that something, this type of like downstream data analysis is that something you can start right now have you started doing that because you have these like you said free sources from the government satellites right of data you could analyze our tech team they have been doing space weather for more than like i don't know 40 years 30 50 years or something they have been actually building space weather instrumentations for those huge satellites and they have been analyzing this data for a lot of time and actually they saw the potential in, in the space weather niche and um, they, they said, look, guys, there is publicly available data. There is the data that we can get. And if combining this data, we'll have a complete service. So uh, right now, we don't have our own data. We're still uh, in the process of uh, we'll have our in-orbit demonstration in the mid of the year. Uh, and uh, as soon as we do that and receive our first data set, we'll definitely, you know, combine those two data sets and, and, uh, and we'll grow and see... Uh, how we can, you know, improve the the current services and bring our services to the next level. You could talk a little bit more about your own constellation you want to have, you know, like what type of satellites you're going to use, how many satellites you need, so forth. Yes. So currently we are looking for our flight heritage and first in-orbit demonstration of just our payload. We'll be using shared satellite service providers to do, to achieve that purpose. But in the future, we plan to have a whole uh, constellations of 24 nanosatellites on low Earth orbit with galactic ray detectors and our universal semiconductor spectrometers. Those are the actual detectors that measure the geophysics data and high energy particles on each board. And with that, we'll be able to get real-time high energy data, as well as the real-time prediction of radiation changes. Because the whole system, the, the whole physics behind the system is that there is a 
wide known Forbush effect that states that after there is a decrease in the galactic race, a coronal mass ejection will follow. So once we identify that decrease in the galactic race, we can say that, yes, that coronal mass ejection will hit the Earth because we are detecting it in the low Earth orbit and with 100% accuracy be like, get ready for a geomagnetic storm. Okay, that's really interesting. So that's sort of like a a warning sort of in the same way that like before you have a tsunami, like the, the sea would be receding, right? Exactly. Okay, now I understand. I was going to ask you the really stupid question, like, because if, if the storm hit right away, right, it might knock out your satellite <laughs> before the satellite could actually give the warning, <laughs> right? But okay, now I understand how that how that works. And maybe just to, um, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but uh, maybe just like one or two sentences around what, what type of radiation of rays are we talking about here, like in terms of, you know, particles and things like that? Uh, there are basically electrons and protons that we're going to be measuring. I'm not sure... What do you mean by what type of radiation? Because I'm more on the business side. I, 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 I can't go That's deep into tech, into tech stuff. But as Xenia said, it's going to be a Furbish effect. And if I get a little bit more in there, we're going to use a correlation analysis. So there is a sun side of the Earth. There is a dark side on the Earth. And by such correlation analysis, we will be able to say, look, guys, we see the decrease on one side, increase on the other side. Therefore, the solar flares are coming. And you mentioned your first mission is going to be a hosted payload, which makes a lot of sense. Then you were talking about your own constellation. So I, I have to ask, I mean, we got so many satellites already in LEO and so many more which are, you know, going up on constellations. I mean, is, is there not some possibility you guys could just have um, your hosted payload on some other constellation? Yes, of course, that's an option that we consider. It's just going to be depending on whether we will be making actual debris in the space. And if we are, if we will be making a negative impact, then of course we'll be using shared satellite services because as a comp- as a socially responsible company, we aim to contribute to sustainable development goals. And that's having so many uh, satellites um, on our low Earth orbit significantly impacts that uh, purpose. So yes, uh, if we see that we could, um, ourselves with our investments uh, get just the shared satellites and just have those 24 payloads I think that would be an option for us as well. Artem if you if you want to add anything on that Well I think Xenia said it the best way you could uh, we understand that there is problem with space debris and uh, nowadays some companies actually do a lot of work in that direction. We have some idea of how we can, you know, they orbit our future satellites, but we'll see how it goes. You mentioned nanosatellites, but just to get more, a little bit more specific, what, what kind of size are we talking about here? It depends. We need just half a unit for the first launch, mm-hmm. but then uh, we have uh, some ideas on adding another uh, detector that would, you know, even advance our system therefore we'll need something like one and a half two unit satellite okay that's still that's still very small and also i mean if, even if you're 24 of them that means sort of the total investment for the constellation i mean it's a certain size but it's not completely crazy it's nowhere close to like some of the communications um constellations obviously okay so i mean you, you talked about future plans i mean where do you see this company sort of you know a little bit further down the road in you know 10 15 years that's that's a really good question um well, of course, we would like to contribute to overall space weather services because uh, we understand that since the technology, that the usage of technology is increasing and there are more and more space launches, uh, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars and, uh, you know, they need the space weather measurements during the flight as well and uh, on the moon as well because moon is the future of uh, research and development, as many people say. Therefore, we plan to expand not on the Earth, but in space as well, on the Moon and Mars. We want to participate in those missions. 
because we see the potential and the need of our services. And um, basically, yeah, 24 constellations is just our, I don't know, three to five year plan. And then to expand, to go further. In, in a way, isn't your service even much more important in places like the moon and Mars? precisely again, because you don't have a protective magnetosphere? Absolutely, absolutely. That's the case. That's the case. But for now, it's it's difficult to implement it in there because nobody, I mean, not not a single person sure. went there and. Will so there's no big there's no big market yet, right? And and yeah. sort of the few things we operate there, like the Mars rovers, they just use radiation hardened uh, components. No, I'm sort of talking. You know, if everything goes well, we start having, you know, settlements um, in some of these places. Then it's mm -hmm. going to become more important, I guess. We're ready to jump in, definitely, and we're super interested. Okay, so what are some of your other big milestones? I guess the next one is then flying flying the, the equipment on the hosted payloads, and then how, what are the next steps after that? Yeah, yeah, so we will have our in-orbit demonstration this year, and the actual launch of our first one and a half, five payloads being launched after the obtaining the flight heritage. And as soon as we have those five payloads up in space, we'll be getting our data and building up the software with the integrated APIs and actual, actually running those beta tests with our potential customers. Um, and after that, we see how that's going to go. We see how we could contribute to federal agencies. We would like to talk with NOAA and NASA. It's still in progress and seeing how we could help um, to supplement the already existing services. So definitely some government work uh, going on, as well as commercial downstream solutions that we could provide. And yes, uh, as per now, we have the whole business development. We're talking with the customers. We're participating in accelerator programs, trying to get as many partnerships as possible, um, are looking to expand our advisory board, just uh, increasing the awareness of space weather. We have been participating in some of the conferences um, and just really bringing up the space weather issue uh, forward and more on the international, national level, because we're from a small country in Europe, Latvia, uh, and we're among those five space startups. So actually just like having our voices heard, I think that's the first step um, in going forward and increasing our awareness. And we'll see how that's going to go. Maybe we're going to have that 24 satellite constellation much, much sooner than three to five years, hopefully. <laughs> so we'll see how that's going to go for us. I mean, it's, it's funny, again, sort of, you know, because I studied some of that stuff, I'm, I'm aware of these things like the Carrington event, but sort of, I think your average person, I don't know what your perception is, the average person just doesn't even know that happened or, ex or existed. And in some ways, in a bizarre way, I think like one of the best things that could happen uh, to you guys is, you know, if we had like a Hollywood disaster movie, which was based on the Carrington event and sort of like depicted what it would do on Earth today. I really hope we don't, we will not need to have an actual like new Carrington event to sort of like uh, drive people into action. I mean, it's it's not only space, but that's actually true for a few things in, in like a few of the dangers from space, right? I mean, people are saying the same about space debris that like, you know, like let's hope we don't need a catastrophic event to kind of trigger government action. It's the same for the you know potential impacts of near Earth object. Let's hope we don't need an asteroid impact to trigger people into action. And I think this this fits in here as well. But you mentioned Latvia. That's one thing I talked about. But then I just realized I didn't even ask you. So how how did you get to do this business? Like how did that happen? Like what where did the idea come from? Great question. 
yes, thank you for asking. So I myself, um, I met Artem back at university in Boston. So we used to go to Suffolk University together. Mm-hmm. Um, we're both from the business background. So I myself have a major in corporate finance and global business. And Artem is a business administrator. And then his dad, so our actual CTO, has been working on space weather and building those uh, space weather detectors for huge satellites since 1990. And he just talked to us about that. And we saw this as an opportunity for us to practice our business skills and see how we could get that a fully you know, technical and R&D idea into a commercial niche and see how we could fit that in. And if we could, so yeah, that's how it kind of started. We saw the potential in bringing the work that they've been doing for decades uh, to a more commercial level. And we've been working on our project for the past year and we've done significant work, I think, on our side. Um, and yeah. If I if I may add a little bit. So, uh, well, Asenia stated, yeah, our CTO is actually my dad and he, he was doing space work for his whole life. And I was always some kind of involved and space was my passion. You know, I watched those space shuttle flights and started a lot, a lot of material on space. And I think that also, the recent uh, success from, let's say, Elon Musk uh, and other space uh, space programs that are being developed brought our interest that space is amazing, guys. We have to try in there. And since we have such an opportunity, yes, we have to do it because it's like a movie. I've, still, it's like a movie for me. I've never been to space. Uh, I'd like to go there, but if I cannot go by myself yet, I will launch some satellites in there and see how and see how they work in there. I, no, I very much sympathize. So let's talk really briefly about uh, Latvia, where the company is based. So what what is the um, the space ecosystem in in Latvia Latvia like? I mean, obviously, know there's some interesting uh, things going on in general in the Baltic states because you know the sponsor of this very podcast, Nanoavionics, is from your neighbors, Lithuania, but what, what about Latvia? Yes, and uh, one thing about nanoavionics, we're also expecting a quote from them to use the shared satellite services and see maybe we're going to launch with nanoavionics uh, mm-hmm. for that flight heritage. Uh, and yes, Latvia, so why Latvia? Our CEO, Alex Paspechov, he's a serial entrepreneur and he was the first person to ever get a startup visa um, to Latvia. And he has been working as a serial entrepreneur for different tech startups uh, and different, like, and trying to um, develop the startup community in Latvia. So that's how we um, chose the place of our, if you may, headquarters in Latvia. Uh, the space community is still growing. We were just announced that uh, the ESA-BIC will be opening its doors in Latvia. Um, I think. In the, in the near future, uh, we also became recently the members of the whole ESA program. At first, we were only part-time members, and now we have the full ability to participate in those ESA tenders, mm-hmm. proposal calls. Um, so that's still, you know, like we're right at that moment where the whole space um, community is developing in Latvia. But the head of the delegation, the people have been really supportive of us. They've been talking with us. They've been uh, trying to help as much as they could. So the actual response and the excitement is there um and we really hope to contribute to expanding the space community and um expanding our influence as well in that space community terrific and usually asa big is, is a good sign and sort of a very valuable addition to the 
the ecosystem. And I realized you're, you're also just like a short way across the Baltic Sea from, from Helsinki on Finland, which has a very vibrant space ecosystem. So hopefully like, you know, when Corona is over and uh, because it's so close, there might be some, you know, synergies going on. Yes, would love that. <laughs> with the Finnish Meteorological Institute, I think they're one of the top ones who are working with space weather. So it would be interesting to reach out to them too. Thanks for the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Okay, cool. Um, so, so let me finish up with you know sort of two questions I was asked. The, the first one is okay. So you now told me sort of the origin story why you guys are doing space weather, but you know you've kind of made it amply clear that you are both excited about space in general. So if you weren't doing mission space and space weather, what might you be doing in space? Oh, that's that that's a really good question. <laughs> You need some time to think about that. But, you know, I really, I don't know, many people would say this, like, you know, ma mainstream. But for me, I really love what Elon is doing with his uh, with his ideas, how he made this AI thing with the returning boosters on Earth. Well, I would really love to join them, if not space weather, because I understand that I yet maybe do not have that ability to do it by myself uh, from the scratch. But I would really love to join and to help him, you know, advance this, because I think this will bring us to, to the Mars. I believe in that. And uh, yeah, you know, those colonizations, those... Those moon research and development and those settlements. Um, I'm not sure if you heard about, but there is a TV series made by Apple TV, the um, for all the mankind. Mm -hmm. Sure. If, if if you have some time, just go ahead and watch it because it's just it's just breathtaking. I would really love, you know, yeah, to colonize some, let's say, moon and, and get those resources needed to for the Earth and so, some some unrealistic, fantastic, but it's coming. Okay, Senya, anything you would like to do in space? Yeah, sure. I think I would be, if not space weather, I would love to explore something off-world um, exploration. I know I don't know if you know about a project called Proudly Human. Uh, I recently learned about it and it. Completely fascinates me. So uh, Adriana Marais, she is a South African theoretical physicist, and she has been taking little settlements and just like gathering people in different extreme conditions. And she has been trying to figure out what it would be like to have a settlement on the Mars uh, in the extreme conditions on the Earth. So if not space weather, I think I would love to contribute to some business development <laughs> in that area. I think that's super fascinating because obviously we're not talking 10, 20, but maybe in 30 years, mm -hmm. uh, we should be expecting first people going off to moon, Mars, and mm -hmm. that kind of preparation is needed. And it's super cool that she's doing that now. So yeah, that's been something I'm, I've been following since I first heard. Okay, let, let me ask you a funny follow-up question on that. So I've been looking a little bit to prepare myself into your guys' background. And, and Sonia, I saw in the previous life you were a champion rhythmic gymnast. How, how would you feel about doing rhythmic gymnastics in like one-sixth gravity on the moon? Not amazing, <laughs> but thanks for that. Um, because you always throw ribbons hoops and once you actually throw them i don't think you'll ever catch them back yes but it's something really cool and i think it would be nice to try you know do those walkovers or flips in space and just you know doing them for endless amounts of rotations yes that would be cool <laughs> hopefully some sometime soon and um and the last and final question we always have okay science fiction guys and we've mentioned a few things already by, by reference um do you guys like science fiction and what are your favorites well if i may start as i said you're talking about the movies right or it could be movies it could be books it could be tv series Yeah, could be anything. Well, my favorite would be For All the Mankind. It's it's a recent one and I enjoyed it. I'm still, you know, still watching, but yeah, it, it's it's really interesting as well as 
the one that I uh, that I watched that I was when I was a child was Armageddon was um, mm-hmm. Bruce Willis. Sure. I watched it like ten times. Yeah, it was amazing. That was about a a, a, a threatening ast- potential asteroid impact. I remember that. Yes, like, yes, and how they tried to you know to destroy it. And I lo- I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as for me, I think Artem, you need to help me with that. I recently, Artem showed me a movie which I, for some reason, did not watch. Um, it's called, what is it called? The Alien? Or... Yeah, The Alien. The Alien. For some reason, I managed to not see it. And when I was watching it, and there's the actual series of uh, The Alien versus the... Who was it? The Predator. Yeah. The Predator. <laughs> the Alien and The Predator. <laughs> that was super cool for um, for me. I really like the whole idea of, you know, how they um, go to the space. Oh, also the movie with the little um, alien that gets huge. It's called, I think, not sure how it's called, but it's about Kelvin and uh, Ryan Gosling is in the movie. So for girls, I think that's a good reason to watch it. Uh, <laughs> so, yes, uh, I really like when the idea of aliens and aliens invasion or aliens versus aliens, predators and the alien uh so just yeah overall uh idea about yeah, that i see you basically like aliens like really screwing humans humans are yeah, over getting cool. into problems. I, think that's okay. cool. <laughs> I, I hope that's not gonna be the case <laughs> Good I hope ryan gosling will be able to save us we, like yeah ryan gosling will save us or, or bruce bruce willis you know yeah. one, of, one of those guys and and you know and as we all know soon tom cruise is planning on filming a movie on the the space station and maybe he can save us too i mean he's mission impossible after all <laughs> guys thank you so much it's been a lot of fun and thank you for teaching us about space weather and the importance of it which you know again many people probably don't know and you know good luck with the company and speak sometime soon i hope thank you very much for your time thanks uh, for everybody who's listening thanks everyone our pleasure well that's it for another nominal episode of the space business podcast If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.